Welcome to Courageous Conversations, a podcast exploring the intimate side of activism. I'm Gillian Riley. And I'm Jen Warren. And through these interviews, we seek to understand what it really takes to show up and make change during this critical time in history. In an effort to become more effective change makers. Yes. Ultimately, our aim is to promote authentic engagement as a vital component of social justice and social change. Today, I'm speaking with Kenne Isom. When I was first introduced to Kenne, I thought I was meeting an LGBTIQ activist. I thought I knew what his issues were and what our script would be, but I quickly realized something more was going on, that this was a script I'd never heard before. Because in the context of addressing queer rights and queer inclusion, Kenny is actually trying to expand our collective definition of what queer really means. He's forcing us to contend with the notion of the other and the fact that a little bit of other lives inside each of us. Kenny, I'm really grateful that you virtually stepped off a plane to speak with us. Thank you. Oh, my pleasure, my pleasure. Thanks for this opportunity. I'm under the impression that you've spent your career working on behalf of the other people who felt excluded. And yeah, pretty much. Around queer human rights, LGBT issues, I almost have a global personality now. As ED of Amsha, I was like the poster boy of male homosexuality in Africa, you know? Uh, see how we can create a different society, a different space, if we did things differently, if we asked a different set of questions. And I think before even my work life, my life has been about protecting the other. I'm a first son, so in the context of being an Igbo child and the first son, there's a lot about responsibilities and well, I have three other siblings, two sisters and a brother. And very early, I, I learned that I needed to, to somewhat be there, you know. So you pick up on all of these things and you kind of know that <laughs> there's a lot for you to do. I went to military school at age 11 and spent six years in military school and 10 years in the army afterward. So my first sense of real relationship outside family was connections I developed with people who I really had nothing in common with, not religion, not ethnicity, maybe just race. I don't know whether that formed me or I called it, but I was in the army when Nigeria was very involved in the peacekeeping operations in Liberia and Sierra Leone. And I usually start the story of my quest for social justice from this point because a number of soldiers really wanted to be deployed to Sierra Leone and Liberia. There was all of these diamonds floating around and people went and came back a little wealthier. And they would come back with all the stories of how beautiful the place was and the diamond mines. And, and I kept wondering what the story of the people who were there would be and whether it would be as glamorous as the soldiers who had come back from these successful missions. And that bothered me until 2002-2003. I met a bunch of doctors who were volunteering their time in Cote d'Ivoire. The war had just ended and so the humanitarian workers had left and they were pretty much volunteering and supporting refugees with very little resources. 
So for my birthday that year, I and my friends put together our funds and uh, we took 130 kilograms of essential medicines. And I spent three weeks with the doctors in camp and it was the most fulfilling thing I had ever done in my life up till that point. I had just finished my law degree at the time, still in the army. And I knew that was something I wanted to do for the rest of my life, maybe. And you had a sense of responsibility beyond your own borders. You had a sense of regional or yeah. continental responsibility, if you will, to serve and support those who had less. Yes. We were raised with this very broad appreciation of who we were relative to humanity, basically. So we traveled around the country, made friends from all over. So I grew up in a home that had people from all over. So from an early age, you've been crossing boundaries, if you will, crossing real or perceived boundaries. And I think playing with identity, blurring identity, whether it's ethnic or cultural, saying how do we transcend that to find something essential mm. in all of us, regardless of where we come from, that feels to me like a lot of what you're doing today. Yes. Again, whether we call our journeys or our journeys shape us, you know, mm. one really doesn't know. But I believe that the experiences we have as children shape us for what ultimately we end up doing with our lives. The other thing about me is also that I've always been rebellious somewhat. Okay, not rebellious, but I've always had a rebel streak to me. So even within a very regimented institution where the mantra is obey the last order, as a young man, I still found the guts to say no to my commanding officer on an issue that I just felt there was no logic to. In hindsight, you think about those things and how they could have turned out because you wonder whether it was preparing you for something bigger. And all through, I've ended up questioning the status quo. Culturally, religion, the way the world works, politics, gender, sexuality, all kinds of identities, race, all of these things. When you have that sense of purpose, when you have that sense of alignment mm -hmm. with your values and your principles, then those acts of bravery, courageous disobedience, comes somewhat naturally. It feels like there's no other choice. Yeah, it feels like there's no other choice. <laughs> I'm not sure it comes naturally. I think it was Mandela that says that courage is not the absence of fear. It's the judgment that some things are more important than what you fear. But when you look at it in the grand scheme of things, then you realize that to not be courageous, you would suffer more. There is much more at stake than what you fear right now. You're describing almost a sense of calling from an early age, you know, that took different shape as you got older. Absolutely. I mean, we grew, I grew up in an evangelical setting. Even though they were liberal, I think, for their time and setting, as I grew older and looked at my parents, they were challenging norms in their own ways too, you know? Our private lives are becoming more public and our private choices are becoming perhaps the most important ones we will make. Yeah. Those lines are blurring. Surely that sits in some of the work you're doing around inclusion. Over the years, getting acquainted with feminism and feminist ideologies and 
gender roles and norms. I feel that gender and gender norms and roles are really fluid creations. It's the whole question around what we value, who we value, where do we place value in society. And it differs from community to community. One of my more recent fascinations around sexual diversity and gender diversity in today's world and in today's Africa is how homophobia and transphobia has become almost the norm and people simultaneously talk about Africa and homophobia and yet the more I speak to older Africans I'm yet to come across a community that stoned gay people in their very local context. I think communities were also organized differently, you know. Ultimately, people lived in more connected communities. I mean, is the reaction now in part because of the broader shifts that are taking place, the changing power dynamics, the changing economic dynamics, that within that space it becomes an easy target? I guess when you see a head of state, for instance, an African leader today, make homophobia like the talking point in an election, you wonder, are you really a leader, you know, and if these people are members of your community, how do these things connect? We're facing the time of deep cultural anxiety about changing roles. And so within that comes this desire to fixate on what is perceived as the other, the vulnerable, the excluded, and giving permission to them to become power holders within the mainstream. It's a reflection of a broader anxiety. Yeah. So this notion of inclusion, you know, I'm interested in for you what that means i mean you know that i loved your phrase queer inclusion yeah <laughs> the impact of what was it queer inclusion on sustainable yeah. development in africa yeah inclusion in what to what end you know that notion of the whole the whole the sense of an inclusive society in an african context yeah. in many ways we live in a world that's increasingly less inclusive. We see it, whether we talk about othering of migrants and women and transgender persons and whoever is the other. And it's that thing about acknowledging that whoever we are, whatever our power and privilege, in a different context, we are the other. And just being open about that and realizing that we've been excluded and included in different ways in different spaces and inclusion should be a holistic conversation that we should all be having. Wherever we are on that ladder, there is someone we are othering. And I think that's the bottom line. It doesn't matter whether we're speaking about queer inclusion, we live in a society that has structured itself around making somebody else the undesirable other. And once we realize that however powerless we think we are in society, however at the bottom of the food chain we think we are, there is somebody we are oppressing, deliberately or inadvertently. And exclusion is also manifesting itself beyond the rhetorics in real life issues 
of poverty, of lack of access to services. We see that exclusion has real ramifications in people's everyday life. And then you look at Africa, the richest continent by natural resources, and yet the poorest in terms of access, access to wealth, access to all kinds of services. We leave the reality of exclusion. We live it here. And so within the context of the global conversation on sustainable development, and whatever that means, you know, because I think at a very philosophical level, that phrase is problematic in itself. How can we have sustainable development concurrently with systems of capitalism and this insatiable pursuit for private wealth and acquisition? But that's something else. But if we start speaking about sustainable development, I like the underpinning principle of leaving no one behind. That for us to really achieve sustainable development as a human race, as a globe, we have to be very proactive about inclusion. But for us to really take the conversation of inclusion seriously, we will have to look at the communities that have perennially been excluded. Because sustainable development and inclusion cannot be a conversation with the majority, the ones who always have been included. Because then you're not doing anything to change the status quo. So in the context of queer inclusion, and, and I use queer because I think it's for me is the word with which I articulate non-conformity, the rebel streak, which I grew up seeing in myself and has manifested itself in so many other ways. And I see it manifest in so many ways. Societies fear the different, the troublemaker, the one who doesn't shut up and line up. And so those should be the benchmark for inclusion. And so for you, I mean, you've spent your life feeling queer. Yes, in many aspects of my life, yes. <laughs> and and when you introduced that to me, I thought, yeah, I'm queer. Mm, no. Yeah, actually, that was the first time in my life I've ever used that term and felt like I wasn't appropriating something when I said it. No, yeah. I heard you and I felt what you meant. There was a sense of queerness, otherness that resonated with me. And what you're describing, though, is not what most people would associate with queer, is it? Sure. So you're writing this funny line between what is the essential capital Q queer mm -hmm. and what is something that refers to a broader category of those that have traditionally been nonconformist or excluded in some way. Yeah. Are you pushing us to think beyond capital Q queer? Yes, definitely. And how do queers feel about that? <laughs> how, do they, how do people who would traditionally use that word and own that word as it relates to their sexual orientation feel about it becoming a blanket term for the other, the others among us? I think for any queer person, capital Q queer, who really takes time to interrogate this question, we will realize that Whoever we are, we are more than, in one or more contexts, we are the other. And even if I stand in the category of capital Q, the problems that hit me, hit me for a variety of other reasons. 
when we talk about intersectionality and the fact that you're not one thing and your vulnerability is as a result of the intersection of multiple reasons. To really understand what the import of their experiences are, you have to ask about other things that describe them. What other boxes and context other them? It could be race, it could be economic status, educational status, family arrangements, a number of other things. And I think there's an appreciation even among queer Africans, capital Q Africans, that a sole look at identity, the sexual orientation or the gender identity, and an analysis from that singular perspective is doing more harm than good to a broader conversation around changing hearts and minds. Because that's not all you are. You're not just a lesbian. You're not just gay. You're not just bisexual. And even if that was all you were, there are other people who are being impacted by the same systems of oppression that oppress you for other reasons other than their sexual orientation. So if we truly are concerned about making change, then we should address the systems of oppression. And in addressing the systems of oppression, we can't stick with singular identities. We must explore all the other boxes that have queered us and recognize that it's the same systems, oftentimes, that drive the oppression. Do you think that is unique to queer Africans? The nature of life on the continent means that singular identity politics are an inappropriate luxury. I mean, in some ways, you're at the forefront of a discussion around identity because you don't have the space to just deal with that one issue when there are a variety of other issues. Is there something unique about being queer African as opposed to queer American or queer Asian? Well, in today's world, I don't think it's something really unique to queer Africans, even though I think that the greater the manifestation of oppressions in a society, the more it makes sense to take an intersectional approach to dealing with the systems of oppression. So if I lived in a context where poverty wasn't an issue, I had access to good education, I had access to good health care, I had a government that felt accountable to some degree, and the only real thing that challenged my life every day was the fact that I was different because of who I choose to love. I might even see why it makes sense for that to be the singular oppression that you choose to fight, right, in that context. But that luxury, and to use the word luxury in a way that I think it fits this context, that's not the luxury that we do have in many African countries. I look at Nigeria, for instance. And you see oppression presenting itself in the context of ethnic difference, in the context of age difference, in the context of what your sex is, it would be foolish to only pick one box, like that was all that mattered. Increasingly, there are a number of people who see the point in taking this intersectional approach to dealing with issues of justice and social change and attempting to call out the problem at the root of it all. This for you sits at the heart of challenging 
power. Yeah. Traditional structures of power mm -hmm. that are based on patriarchy and culture and identity. I mean, full stop. For you, queer inclusion is striking at the heart yeah. of old school power. Absolutely. And I think there's something also very assaulting in the use of queer. Because when you use queer in the context of my work across many African countries, the first reaction is a reaction to queer sexuality, right? And it's not an indifferent reaction. And I'm hoping that this frame could get us to go beyond that. I mean, of course, there is also an agenda to speak to sexual diversity and gender diversity, but that we speak to it without making it look like it was an exceptional kind of difference. Yes, the realities are somewhat harsher in some countries more than others. There's no denying that. But I think the more we see that we are queer, on very many issues and in very many contexts. Hopefully the easier it is for us to accept others who we've traditionally been taught to queer or other. You're using very provocative language deliberately. You know, as you say, it's not a word that isn't going to get a reaction. So talk to me about what that feels like, trying to advance this discussion with everyday people in everyday places. You know, I joke and say, I could give you 10 people to speak to who know me and you might come up with five persons because we are not one person. So I am many things. My name is Kenneth Esom. I'm an Igbo man. That is a whole identity by itself. But I'm also a Christian minister. I'm a lawyer. I'm polyamorous. I'm a resident of South Africa, globally traveled. I'm married, my wife is American, I'm expecting a baby, I have siblings. I was in the army. You could take any of those stories and it's an entire personality, right? So I've had people say, until all your personalities become one, you're not an authentic person. And I find that worrisome. That's the reality of who I am, of who we are as human beings. So I think the thing is to start with people from where their comfort is. So to answer your question, whether I am speaking to pastors, which I do as part of my work, or whether I'm speaking with foreign ministers at the UN, or whether I'm speaking with kids, I'm, I also teach Sunday school and I've done so for 17 years. I always try to start with that point that brings myself and my audience at closest par, but asking the questions that force them to interrogate spaces where they're not as comfortable. And what you're describing is empathy. What a wonderful thing to hear. We are in an age of conversion or denouncement or denial of the other. And what you're saying is that you're trying to start from a place of comfort and explore from there and recognizing that there is that place. Yeah. Whatever walk of life we come from, there is a core humanity that connects us. Yeah, absolutely. 
In that sense, it's radical what you're doing in this moment in history, in terms of breaking down otherness to find togetherness. I mean, it feels incredibly profound as we grow farther and farther apart from each other. It's interesting for me that at this moment you're doing that from an LBGDI platform. How do you use that for inclusiveness when, as you say, it's a lightning rod issue? You know, so we've seen over the last few years that LGBT persons seem to be the extreme of otherness in mm. African societies. So hopefully, if you get to the place where you stop seeing people at the extreme of that spectrum as the other, then it's easier to see everyone else with the same humanity. And so I'm asking questions about our shared humanity. And what you're saying is we're all others, we're all, it's breaking down that power dynamic even between yourself and the people whose cause you are working towards. Yes, and I think the fundamental problem with categorizing any group of people as victims, it denies the agency of those people. It worked at one time, but doesn't anymore because the so-called victims no longer want to be treated as passive recipients of this paternalistic support without an engagement about what this means for them, you know? And now we see that victimhood isn't this linear thing, you know, like one narrative story. Oh, they're victims because, no, nobody's a victim because of one thing. Again, back to the notion of intersectionality. It's multiple things about your identity that predispose you to the circumstances of vulnerability that eventually bring you to that place of victimhood. In exploring that, it just completely flips the whole idea of who really is a victim. As you say, there's a changing notion of victims and villains and blurring of those lines. What do you draw from that allows you to explore these issues of vulnerability and otherness and exclusion? Fundamentally, we are all the other. What we've gotten comfortable doing as human beings is living the more positive narratives and exuding the power of those positive narratives and dealing privately with the demons of the spaces that others us. The world is, I'm experiencing it being turned on its head. Again, the traditional tropes, the traditional notions of power, the traditional notions of developed and underdeveloped and what is desirable are being completely mixed up now. And does that give you a sense of hope? The hope it gives me is that today there are no single narratives. There are no good and bad spaces anymore. There are no good and bad systems anymore. And that's why I think that the conversation about what inclusion mm. means and who the other is might find more fertile grounds to germinate today. Because these lines get blurred, you know. So hopefully this creates an opportunity for us to see that our lives 
can change. Our lives do change. There are multiple narratives to our existence, to who we are. But we need to recognize that. So I guess pretty much what I'm hoping for is that the realities of our globe today, of the multiple crazy narratives that are playing out in shifting ways, will force us to see ourselves differently. And I think a lot of troublemakers and change makers are people who have that ability to move in and out and to one, gain perspective, to gain empathy. What happens when you cross over into other countries, other causes? You know, you're challenging us to start to think quite differently about ourselves and about other. Do you find acceptance to that? What does it feel like for you to be agitating for change within a queer community, within a development community, within an African community? My gosh, how do you do that every day? I think it boils down to that quote on courage because the status quo benefits people. These boxes work for people. The status quo works for people, right? And that's why it truly has to be courageous conversations. Sometimes more than just conversations, you know, sometimes it has to be courageous fist fights. Because once you start speaking this way, you're challenging people's power, you're challenging people's privilege. So what makes somebody let go of that? Nobody willingly lets go of power. You need to either use your power differently or you need to share it or you need to let go of it because it's no longer appropriate for you to hold it in the way that you're holding it. I mean, people don't just say, you know what, you're right. (laughs) I think we need to call it out. Yeah. We need to call it out. That's an important thing to do. Traditionally, the powerful had found ways to silence the voices of those who would call them out. I think one of the beautiful things about today is There are more platforms to do that, but there's also an increasing desire to be politically correct. If we worked that well, we could change things. So that's on the accountability part of things. We also need to create like minds within institutions of power. And that's where the courageous conversations Mm -hmm. becomes important. Intellectual arguments connect to the heads of people. And people don't change because you made an intellectually sound argument. But when you have real conversations about your experience, it connects to values and experiences that people have shared or hold dear, and it touches their hearts. And so ultimately, we need to get off a very highfalutin intellectual debates and all of that. Ultimately, changing hearts and minds will happen because you're connected to someone's heart. And I've seen how it works very practically. And you can say all you want. You can argue the scriptures. You can match legal document by legal document. And these debates go on and on and on. And then you just tell a story. Your story. Your struggle. Their struggle. Once the human element becomes the basis, and this is being very simplistic, but I think for the longest time we thought that these intellectual debates, these log frames, these things really make change. Change happens because we shared an experience, 
we walked a journey with someone and they never forget that journey. I looked through my life and everywhere I felt othered, I remembered someone who walked the journey with me. And I try to walk the journey with people as I go through my life. And I'm one person. And if I can walk that journey through my 39 years, hopefully I may have inspired 39 people to walk that journey. And the more of us who walk the journeys with people through their oppressions, hopefully we'll create a world of empathy. I can't empathize with you just because we share an oppression together. What's truly powerful is when mercy finds you when there isn't an explanation for it. I'm asking myself, why would she walk this journey with me? It's not her cause. She could be somewhere else. I think that's the most powerful moment I've had. When people walk the journey with me, who, as far as I was concerned, had no reason to. And those moments you never forget. I think that's really beautiful because I can say in my own career, I didn't walk a journey with a lot of people. I ran an organization, I administrated things, I had important conversations. I didn't know people's names, I didn't sit in their houses. I worked on AIDS for five years and never had a conversation with somebody about their sex life or their love life or what it felt like to want somebody or need somebody. Ultimately, you know, I was so lonely because I'd never walked a journey. That connection was something that it's so fundamental to bringing humanity back, but it's not easy to do. I think the truly courageous conversations would be the, the tears and the pain. And as courageous as this conversation has sounded, I wonder if I would even be as courageous to go there. You know, we all have those spaces. And sometimes you tell yourself better it is a private burden than a public burden. I guess that's how I've dealt with it most times, you know. There's just so much that's dependent on you. So if you can carry a burden privately, carry it privately. And yet, oftentimes it's in that capacity, and I'm learning that, in the capacity to say, this is all it is. It's about empathy, it's about being vulnerable, it's about showing that you share an oppression. Where do I find hope? Maybe we were just meant to connect one to the other. Maybe that's where we should go back to. I don't know that it's going to be a different world when I pass, but I do have faith and that's where I find hope. I have faith that there is something bigger than us that is in us and outside of us and that if we connected with faith rather than fear, we could change something. So I have rarely sat with someone who's forced me to relook at myself, my assumptions, and my place in the world the way that Kenne did. We hope you've been as moved and as challenged as we were. Absolutely. Jen and I just spent two hours unpacking our own reactions to Kenne's thoughts on being the other. Yeah. You know, we live in a time of othering, where so many external forces are feeding our fears and pushing us apart as humans. After speaking with Kenne, I felt hope. Hope that in this time of othering, we might find our way back to each other. 
And as Kene says, we might find a way to walk this journey with each other and to touch each other's hearts and minds. That by finding the other in each of us, we might find the way forward for all of us. Courageous Conversations is supported by the Ford Foundation and produced by Jen Warren, with music courtesy of Benjamin Verdery. Follow us on iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts. Search for Courageous Conversations. You can also visit JillianReilly.com slash podcasts for more information or to listen online. And we have a new website. Visit soundpage.fm slash Courageous Conversations. Thanks for listening.